the Nebraska Lecture Series celebrates the university's 150th anniversary. You can find videos of the monthly lectures at research.unl.edu slash Nebraska Lectures. In this installment of the Nebraska Lecture Series, Tim Borstelman demonstrates how the current debate over immigration in the United States is nothing new. Dr. Borstelman is the Ian and Catherine Thompson Professor of Modern World History. His talk, titled The Hearts of Foreigners, How Americans Understand Others, is a preview of his forthcoming book by the same name. Six years ago, I began serious research into a historical question that had long interested me. How have Americans thought about and understood non-Americans? Conceptions of foreigners have underpinned all of US foreign relations and all of US immigration policies, two fields of historical inquiry that have traditionally been studied separately, but that actually fit very closely together. I completed the bulk of this research in the first four of those six years, which coincided with the uh, second presidential term of Barack Obama, and I began writing up the results. It was an optimistic time for considering the question of foreignness and the expanding definition of who could be considered fully Americans. Historians, we may work on the past, but we are not immune from the world that we actually live in, despite what some of our spouses think. Then came a certain election two and a half years ago. The results were loudly applauded by, among others, the Ku Klux Klan, neo-Nazis, so-called white nationalists, isolationists, and nativists. My storyline of, uh, of a sort of expanding tolerance, if you will, of uh, diversity seemed imperiled by these events. As some of my more blunt friends put it, and some of them are here today, I want to emphasize, uh, aren't you just plain wrong? The answer, I believe, is no. My argument is not about the future, but it's about the past. The historical evidence up to 2016 remains the same. There has always been a struggle between forces of inclusion and forces of exclusion, between those emphasizing commonalities and those emphasizing differences. While the pendulum swung one way in 2016, it's not at all clear that the nation's future is now Trumpian. Chinese revolutionary Zhou Enlai was once asked what he thought of the French Revolution a century and a half earlier. Zhou famously replied, too soon to tell. It is surely too soon to tell the future direction of US politics. But regarding foreignness, there is a historical pattern to date that is too clear to ignore or to discount. And it is largely an encouraging one. This is my story for you today. Foreign, what does it mean? The English word foreign derives from the Latin for door and outside. That which is outside the door and thus not part of us and our household, whoever we are here on the inside of the door. It's close to the Italian adverb fuori, outside. And it's opposite of the Spanish adjective familiar, meaning family. Foreigners do not belong to the family. Or do they? Or could they? How have Americans understood the nature of other peoples over time? Are they essentially similar to Americans? 
or are they in their cultural or even biological essence different? On the answer to this question has hung great significance for how the United States has interacted with the rest of the world. The most compelling answer to this question of how to understand foreigners, I want to suggest, was crystallized in a scene from Full Metal Jacket, Stanley Kubrick's 1987 film about a group of American GIs who were uh, serving in Vietnam. A US colonel in the film, this fellow in the poster, is instructing a skeptical young army journalist in his unit about the purpose of the American war in Southeast Asia. We are here to help the Vietnamese because inside every foreigner, the colonel uses a racial epithet for Asians, but he clearly means all foreigners. Inside every foreigner, there is an American trying to get out. This universalist assumption arises not merely in fiction or art. John Pryor, a US Army sergeant serving in Iraq two decades later, explained precisely the same view to journalist George Packer. In my heart, said Sergeant Pryor, in my heart, I believe everybody's American. Indeed, from the Convention Hall in Philadelphia in 1787 to the invasion route through southern Iraq in 2003, there has been an abiding assumption that American culture, American principles, and American practices are not only the best ever created by human beings, but are also closely aligned with the very essence of human nature. The ultimate logic of American exceptionalism on brightest display during the Cold War held that US history and American institutions had facilitated the full liberation of the human spirit and the fulfillment of the highest human aspirations. American democracy and American culture were thus seen as truly natural in common American thinking, giving citizens self-rule, freedom, and a market economy that sold them what they wanted and what they needed. Such assumptions about the essential character of American society and about the inner yearnings of non-Americans reached unprecedented influence in the mid 20th century, but they were not entirely new in the Cold War. The revolutionaries of the 1770s had expected other peoples to emulate their actions. And in fact, they had watched as most of Latin America did so in the following generation. The subsequent story of US expansion awkwardly balanced conquest with attempts at conversion from Pequot and Cherokee to Afghani and Iraqi. A letter sent by the Continental Congress to the inhabitants of Quebec in 1774 perfectly squared the circle of an expanding empire imagining itself as a center of freedom. The Continental Congress's letter invited the Quebecois to join the anti-British Union of Colonial Troops marching north with these words. You will have been conquered into liberty if you act as you ought. While Quebec and the rest of Canada managed to avoid being conquered into liberty, others were not so fortunate or unfortunate depending on one's political views. Through the 19th century, US dominion ranged from Liberia in the east to Hawaii and the Philippines in the west, from Alaska in the north to Nicaragua in the south, and of course, right here to Nebraska in the center of the continent. But certain constraints had to be overcome to enable the full flowering of American universalism. One such constraint had been persistent racial and ethnic prejudice that cramped the ability of white Americans to fully imagine non-Europeans and even many Europeans from East and South of the Alps as being like themselves. 
Another constraint was a lingering cultural insecurity among American elites. While intensely proud of US economic success, they still looked to Europe for the highest cultural standards in such arenas as art or literature, drama, fashion, cuisine. And a third constraint was the tradition of hemispheric, if not isolationist, resistance to global engagement and to militarism. The political and, and military position of the United States in international affairs remained modest before World War II in comparison to the nation's economic might. These constraints began to disappear rapidly in the 1940s as the distinctive circumstances of the mid-20th century ratcheted up the stakes for how Americans understood non-Americans. The denouement of World War II left millions of US military personnel on duty on every continent and on every ocean. The startling resurgence of the US economy expanded American trade interests everywhere. The, the decline of globalism reshaped American politics. I'm sorry, the decline of colonialism reshaped global politics. And the Cold War drew the American presence outwards toward the world. As Secretary of State Dean Acheson explained to a group of newspaper editors in 1950, there is no longer any difference between foreign questions and domestic questions. They are all part of the same question. In newly extensive and intensive contact with foreigners everywhere, Americans had to figure them out. What Americans did after 1945 was to largely shed some older, hierarchical notions of humankind, grounded particularly in ideas about race, ethnicity, and religion, and to confirm instead a growing sense of foreigners as potential Americans. Despite some ongoing dissent, the broad middle ground of common sense in mainstream American society came to agree eventually with the colonel in Full Metal Jacket and with Sergeant John Pryor in Iraq that other peoples despite often growing up and living under repressive political and religious regimes, still, in their hearts, if they were allowed to, would re reveal themselves as American. They wanted, in other words, US-style freedom, opportunity, and affluence. This view of foreigners was both profoundly ethnocentric and inward-looking on the one hand, and universalistic and inclusive on the other. And it came to be shared across the political spectrum, from liberal proponents of immigration reform to conservative advocates of preemptive war in Iraq and by most moderate Americans in between. Very few Americans believed in cultural relativism. If American culture was natural and allowed for the fullest expression of human freedom, and if other peoples aspired to live like Americans or even to be Americans, then what Americans most feared was the loss of their natural freedom to unnatural subversion. Captivity was the threat, and supposed communist brainwashing, mental captivity, emerged as the quintessential challenge of the Cold War era. While my primary theme today is the shrinking sphere of what was foreign to Americans, I want to emphasize also Americans' concomitant anxieties about possibly losing their freedoms to subversion and to captivity. And I will conclude today by suggesting the potent magnetism of relatively democratic American capitalist culture, whose individualistic pursuit of material comforts and personal freedoms may have been 
the actual greatest subversive force in late 20th century international history. Let us consider first the problem of Americanness. How did Americans, in the era of their greatest power and widest contacts with the outside world, the decades of World War II and right thereafter, how did they come to understand their own American identity? The very idea of foreignness, after all, required not just boundary lines with Canada and with Mexico, but also a clear sense of Americanness. Like most peoples, Americans tended to cherish a firm sense of who they were and to imagine other nations having similarly clear, timeless national essences. Thus, the stereotypes of Germans as orderly, Japanese as self-effacing, Italians as emotional, uh, British as stoic, and so on. Indeed, the very idea of entities called Germany or Japan or Italy or Britain seemed inherently logical with the nation state, if not liberal democracy, assumed as a kind of end of history. Americans paid much less attention to the implications of the continual process of human movement and migration across history. This was the biggest story of all, the two-step process of first, human migration out of East Central Africa and all around the globe, creating the wide diversity of cultures, phenotypes, and languages, and second, globalization, or the reconnecting of the world's far-flung peoples since roughly 1500 AD after the Columbian voyages. In other words, people move. Human history is the story of continuous movement with perpetual cultural evolution and political change as a result. But most Americans by the mid 20th century imagined their own national borders as solid, permanent, and sanctioned by some degree of divine approval. On a map, the oceans provided the anchors and the relatively straight east-west lines just seemed, well, right. There were a few imperial complications around the edges. Hawaii and Alaska muddied the picture. The Philippines slipped off to at least formal independence in 1946. Puerto Rico and the US Virgin Islands seem mostly just winter tourist destinations. And the Panama Canal Zone and Guantanamo Bay remained beyond most Americans' consciousness. And those straight lines west from El Paso and west from Lake of the Woods had, of course, little to do with natural dividing features such as rivers or mountains. But few US citizens had any doubts about their nation's geographical identity. Regional differences, however, complicated the meaning of Americanness well into the 20th century. The Civil War made vivid the absence of national unity, and the South remained an outlier in American life for generations thereafter. Various parts of the nation claimed to be uniquely emblematic of American identity. Massachusetts, for example, boasted the pilgrims and the bulk of the nation's early Christian missionaries going off to bring the light of the gospel to such unchurched regions as Texas, not an aspect of history much noted in the Lone Star State, where regional pride has long held Texas to embody the very essence of American character, except when the governor is publicly contemplating secession. Philadelphians, for their part, touted the Liberty Bell and the writing of the Constitution, though uh, French revolutionaries in 1793, before beheading King uh, Louis XVI, apparently considered instead simply exiling him to Philadelphia as sufficiently cruel punishment. <laughs> this apologies to anybody who's a native of the city of brotherly love. But Midwesterners, meanwhile, like to call their region 
the nation's heartland, and Nebraska, perhaps, the very heart of the heartland. Westerners claimed their landscapes as the most American of all, with Alaskans promoting the last frontier and Montanans proclaiming the last best place. New York remained the most famous and most diverse place in the country, perhaps both the most loved and the most hated. With an immigrant-filled population of 75 million in 1900 and 300 million in 2000, the United States did not lend itself to simple characterization. Despite its size and its persistent heterogeneity, however, the United States did emerge from the 1920s, the 1930s, and World War II with a new and increasingly robust sense of national unity. Fighting and winning two global wars stimulated national self-consciousness and social consolidation, as did the emergence of more tightly integrated national markets and national media, particularly radio and film. Observers at home and abroad, even before World War II, had begun to comment on two new aspects of American identity. First, an American way of life as the first truly modern nation built on individual economic opportunity and mass liberal democracy. And second, a Judeo-Christian tradition of religious liberty relatively free from prejudice. That's a term that doesn't show up before the 1930s. Revived by wartime uh, economic expansion and by victory over right-wing totalitarianism, the United States set off into the post-war era, determined at home to build a middle-class society of unprecedented affluence and abroad to lead what Americans called the free world against the new threat of left-wing totalitarianism. American leaders in the Cold War imagined other peoples as eager to live like Americans. When President Harry Truman in 1947 famously bisected the globe's enormous diversity into what he called just two alternative ways of life, echoing the biblical division of goats from sheep, he articulated the commonsensical American assumption that no people would knowingly choose communist enslavement over democratic capitalist freedom. All people desired freedom, only despots kept them in chains. So the United States was not opposed to other peoples, but only to oppressive regimes. Other peoples identified with the United States, with both the American citizenry and the US government. President Woodrow Wilson had placed this assumption front and center in the first US engagement in a global war. We have no quarrel with the German people, Wilson declared in 1917. We have no feeling toward them, but one of sympathy and friendship. The enemy, Wilson said, was solely the Prussian autocracy. 20 years later, most Americans were inclined to see the German people themselves as the first victims of the Nazi gangsters. Late in World War II, President Franklin Roosevelt continued to insist that we bring no charge against the German race, but only against the Nazi conspirators. In the midst of the nuclear missile crisis in Cuba in 1962, Secretary of State Dean Rusk, he's the fellow on the right here, yes, uh, said precisely the same thing. The United States had no quarrel with the Cuban people only with the regime that has fastened itself upon that country. The US Congress and President Dwight Eisenhower in 1959 issued the first annual Captive Nations Declaration to highlight the injustice of peoples kept unfree 
uh, in Eastern Europe. Even after the Cold War, the 2003 US invasion of Iraq and the overthrow of its government proceeded on the promise of Vice President Richard Cheney that we will in fact be greeted as liberators. This was a liberal universalistic vision of American culture and government as optimal for everyone. This was not a conservative Edmund Burke style understanding of societies as organic, coherent, and fundamentally different from one another. Regardless of their views of invading other nations or their self-descriptions as conservative or liberal or moderate, Americans during the Cold War tended to assume that other peoples were, for the most part, like Americans. Indeed, others often apparently wanted to be Americans as the United States had received well over half of the vast flow of Europeans who left their continent of origin in the century following 1820, what historian Alfred Crosby called the Caucasian tsunami of some 50 million people. The 1924 law establishing the national origin system for immigration largely closed off this flow into the US, reflecting the enduring power of nativist sentiment in US political life. But the geopolitical imperatives of World War II soon sprang leaks in that restrictionist dam, and the Cold War competition for good relations with the newly independent nations of the Third World swept the dam away eventually. American soldiers, for example, brought home tens of thousands of brides from England, France, Italy, Germany, and eventually Japan, South Korea, and Vietnam. The Hart-Seller Immigration Act of 1965 eliminated the national origin system. Invidious ethnic and racial distinctions retreated. Not disappeared, but retreated, particularly in public life. A once essentially black and white society became rapidly more multiracial. Together, Latinos and people of Asian heritage constituted 5.5% of the US population in 1970. By 2017, they had more than quadrupled to 24%. Increasingly, in the last third of the 20th century, foreigners from all lands could become Americans. Now, racially coded anti-immigrant sentiments hardly disappeared from American life, as remains all too evident today. The anti-immigrant tradition is long and powerful stretching back to the era of Benjamin Franklin's warning that colonial Pennsylvania was becoming a colony of aliens who will shortly be so numerous as to Germanize us instead of our anglifying them and will never adopt our language or customs any more than they can acquire our complexion. But just as the idea of Germans having a different complexion from other Northwestern European Americans came to seem peculiar, so too did mainstream public attitudes about race and discrimination change dramatically in the decades following the black freedom struggle and the decolonization of Asia and Africa. Perhaps even more striking in the high Cold War years was the transformation of mainstream American attitudes and behaviors regarding religious diversity. The United States had long been a more avowedly religious nation than other Western industrialized countries, even if its people's religious knowledge did not always keep pace with their professed piety. One thinks, for example, of the recent poll indicating that fewer than one third of Americans know that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, or that 10% of Americans believe Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. For, 
This was fun, putting that slide together. I enjoyed that. For more than three centuries before World War II, uh, and despite a constitutional emphasis on religious liberty, the nation's large Protestant majority had regarded Roman Catholics and Jews with tolerance at best, with skepticism at almost all times, and with often violent disdain at countless moments. But in the face of what we're seeing as deeply anti-religious totalitarian enemies, first Nazi Germany and then the Soviet Union, religious differences among Americans swiftly lost their motivating power. In their place emerged a newly public tri-faith culture under the banner of that still fresh term, the Judeo-Christian tradition. Mainstream American understanding of what was foreign in terms of religion, a key American concern, shrank dramatically. Anti-Catholicism had previously served as a, a rich seam in the mine of American, the American past. For the Protestant majority, the Church of Rome tended to embody the warping of religious truth, the practice of magic, and the sway of blind loyalty to authority over individual reason and conscience. Then came the large new numbers of Catholics in the immigrant surge of the three decades before World War II, before World War I, many of them coming here to Nebraska. Their increasing assimilation in the post-1924 uh, restrictionist era, Catholic soldiers' patriotic service in World War II, the fervent anti-communism of prominent Roman Catholics during the Cold War, and the election of John Kennedy to the White House in 1960. By the 1970s, even fundamentalist Protestants, traditionally the nation's fiercest anti-Catholics, were finding common ground with conservative Catholics in the new Christian right. By 2009, the US Supreme Court consisted of six Catholic justices and three Jewish justices, not a single Protestant among them. One of the largest stories of modern US history is the change in perception of Roman Catholics from being essentially foreign to being quintessentially American. Anti-Semitism followed a similar path. An influx of Jewish immigrants in the years before World War I stimulated traditional Christian prejudice and discrimination, which actually only crested late in World War II. Then came a series of blows to that ugly tradition. The patriotic service of Jewish Americans in the US military, the full revelations of the Holocaust, the Cold War imperative of equality and inclusion, and the creation of the modern state of Israel. The success of Israel, in particular, recast Jews in the minds of Gentile Americans as no longer helpless victims of the Nazis, but now tough, virile pioneers making the desert bloom as successful farmers, despite hostility from non-European indigenous neighbors, a story that sounded to American ears a lot like the story of the United States, and a lot like Nebraska in particular. Discrimination against Jews in the United States, while not disappearing, declined rapidly in the decades after 1945. It's measurable from outmarriage rates to university admissions processes to employment opportunities. The new Christian right, for their part, became fierce defenders of Israel, and Israelis and Americans developed myriad intimate ties. By 1996, Israel's then new prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, sounded and acted precisely like an American because he had lived extensively in the United States where he had attended high school and college and had begun his career. Foreigners, it turned out, often didn't remain foreign. Former external enemies, 
Germany, Japan, Italy became close allies. Once suspect internal exotics, Roman Catholics, Jews, Latinos, became mainstream Americans. A defining feature of modern American society has been the tendency to absorb diversity and even dissent in a resilient, expansive, popular culture. Americans would subvert the subversives, even the communists, eventually. The dream of a better socialist future was the siren song that most Americans feared above all others. For capitalists, socialism posed a perilous form of apostasy, a false promise of even greater freedom and justice. For religious believers, Marxism offered only scorn. And for vigorous nationalists, communism was about as foreign as one could get with the aim of uniting all workers of the world and thereby erasing the very national boundaries that literally defined America as America. To a people obsessed with individual liberty, communist rule threatened captivity. Eastern Europeans and North Koreans had joined Soviet peoples in this kind of captivity by 1948. And a year later, the establishment of the People's Republic of China dismayed Americans who had long believed their country had a special role to play in the, in the world's largest nation through missionary and educational work. With God's help, our own Senator Kenneth Weary of Nebraska had declared just a few years earlier, with God's help, the United States could lift up Shanghai up and up, ever up, until it looks just like Kansas City. Instead, young men from Kansas City and young men from Shanghai were soon killing each other by the thousands on the Korean Peninsula. Similarly, Fidel Castro's revolution in Cuba in 1959 seemed to most Americans another demonstration of free people being taken captive and enslaved, now worrisomely close to American shores. Four years later, the high priest of socialism himself, Nikita Khrushchev, visited the starkest symbol of communist captivity, the newly erected Berlin Wall, and announced to an East German crowd of half a million, I love the wall. For Americans who thought of their own culture as the freest and highest expression of human nature, the idea of captivity was peculiarly repugnant. Physical captivity, such as being taken prisoner in war, was bad enough. But the prospect of mental captivity, of Americans losing their minds to the false lures of apostasy, this was simply evil. It was unnatural. Fears of captivity dated back to the earliest English settlers in North America and their encounters with indigenous peoples, the original subversive communitarian reds, if you will, which gave rise to abiding anxieties about white captives going native, in the phrase that was commonly used. That is, losing who they really were. The central story of captivity in the United States was, of course, that of tens of millions of enslaved black workers a century-long gulag whose deep scars remain visible today. But for the vast majority of Americans by the 1940s, who were not black and who did not live in the South, race slavery seemed increasingly a story of a, a distant past, even as segregation remained. Meanwhile, the 20th century had witnessed the rise of these two great totalitarian empires that literally locked up their own people and other peoples, Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia. Anne O'Hare McCormick wrote in the New York Times in 1952 of this grim century of the homeless man in which Russians and Eastern Europeans were now the saddest people on earth. 
forced against their wills to live under a system so alien to their own instincts and desires. Their own instincts and desires, in this view, were to live freely, like Americans, or at least like white Americans. The spread of this system so alien into China in 1949 filled many Americans with dread. Communism had now seized the most populous nation in the world, a symbol of the non-white global majority who were rapidly shedding colonialism. It seemed a portent of the future, particularly when the United States and China went to war with each other within a year in Korea. And when American soldiers began to be taken as prisoners of war, a new fear swept through the US military command and through the American public, the fear of brainwashing. This term encapsulated American anxieties that the communists in China had developed devious new methods of psychological torture and mind control, used first on Chinese citizens and then on American POWs, which supposedly enabled them to reprogram the minds of their victims. The Wall Street Journal explained this phenomenon in an editorial under this expository headline, The Silent People, Communist Brainwash the once individualistic Chinese into gloomy conformity, fear, and mental atrophy. Despite a lack of scientific evidence, acknowledged a few years later by the US Army, brainwashing became the standard explanation for the refusal of 21 American POWs to be repatriated after the war. They, they chose to go to China instead. By contrast, the 50,000 Chinese and North Korean POWs who also refused repatriation remaining instead in US-allied South Korea or being sent to US-allied Taiwan, they seem to represent to Americans a vigorous confirmation of the natural aspiration of all peoples to live freely like Americans. The myth of brainwashing outlived the Korean War and drifted into many corners of, of Cold War American culture, from the novel and film The Manchurian Candidate down to today's uh, tel Showtime television series, Homeland. Brainwashing dominated the science fiction films that proved so popular in the 1950s, in which aliens regularly infiltrated and changed American minds while leaving them apparently normal and unchanged on the surface. Suddenly, while you're asleep, warned the 1956 film Invasion of the Body Snatchers. They will absorb your minds, your memories, and you'll be reborn into an untroubled world of collectivist calm without individuality or meaning. Such concerns about preserving Americans' individuality and essential personhood dovetailed precisely with the dramatic expansion of psychology as an academic discipline after World War II. I wouldn't be here without it, in fact, since my father was a university psychologist in the years right after World War II. Glad it expanded. <laughs> in the long run, however, in the long run, even supposedly brainwashing communists could not remain completely foreign to Americans. From the beginning in 1917, of course, some Americans had been sympathetic to the Bolshevik project. And even those highly unsympathetic sometimes learned to live with it, often quite profitably. The Ford Motor Company, for example, in the 1920s, who sold a, a very significant percentage of their tractors to Moscow. US leaders promoted warmly positive views of the Soviet Union during the crucial World War II alliance against the Axis powers. The United States built a constructive relationship with the communist government of Yugoslavia after Yugoslavia's ejection from the Soviet bloc in 1948. 
Even the iciest US relationship with a communist regime began to thaw in 1972 when President Richard Nixon famously visited the People's Republic of China and six years later, Beijing initiated reforms allowing in the first subversive elements of private enterprise, the Trojan horse of free markets, if you will. I was going to have a slide of various Trojan horses, but none of the imagery was very good. You get the idea of the, you know, coming out of the horse. The United States even eventually opened formal diplomatic relations with communist Vietnam in 1995, establishing a new relationship that would warm very rapidly. Indeed, within a few months, the new Vietnamese ambassador to Washington found himself invited to dinner with the most obdurate and powerful American anti-communist and long-term racial segregationist, Jesse Helms, chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Helms represented North Carolina's tobacco farmers who were facing declining domestic smoking rates at the time and negative publicity at home and were seeking to make gains in more tobacco-friendly markets abroad, particularly in Asia. Helms was pleased with the dinner and later explained to reporters, I was with some Vietnamese recently and some of them were smoking two cigarettes at the same time. Now that's my kind of customers. Perhaps the largest change of all in mainstream 20th century American understandings of what was foreign regarded Asians and people from Asia. From a demonized and supposedly unassimilable yellow peril, people of Asian descent in the United States rose swiftly during the Cold War to emerge as a so-called model minority by the 1960s. John Dower and other scholars have made clear that non-Asian Americans long held a wide variety of images and ideas about Asians, many of them fiercely negative, but also some that were quite positive. The US wars against Japan and, and in Korea and in Vietnam sharpened the sense of racially coded enmity, but in each case they also complicated it with the presence of critically important Asian allies of Americans. Returning US soldiers also brought home brides in many cases. First a few thousand from Japan, and then almost 100,000 from South Korea by the end of the century. These women joined skilled Chinese refugees from the communist revolution, adopted South Korean orphans, and highly decorated Japanese American veterans of World War II, as well as Issei Gold Star mothers, as faces of a new Pacific-oriented Americanness. California voters sent the first Asian American to Congress in 1956, and Hawaii, with its majority Asian descended population, entered the Union as the 50th state in 1959. Reader's Digest, then an extremely popular magazine, noted what it called an amazing turnabout of Japanese Americans, just one decade out from mass wartime incarceration, now enjoying a prestige, a prosperity, and a freedom from prejudice that even the most sanguine of them had never hoped to attain within their own lifetime. The process of domesticating Asianness into Americanness is an ongoing one, not yet completed, despite the optimism of Reader's Digest and others. Discrimination against people of Asian background comes in many forms, from street violence to higher standards for elite college admissions. The very idea of a model minority was constructed in part as a not so subtle rebuke to African Americans during a time of militant protest against racial discrimination. 
Chinatown, in other words, was not Watts in historian Ellen Wu's concise formulation. The model minority idea necessarily carried its own burden of prejudicial limits, expectations of being studious, of being orderly, of being hardworking, of being deferential. But the old issue of whether Chinese Americans or Japanese Americans were really just extensions of China or Japan, as though their culture were carried somatically and inerasably in their skin or in their bones or even in their blood, this old issue had been decided in mainstream American life by the middle years of the Cold War. Vietnamese were reminded of this reality in 2009 when the USS Lawson docked in Da Nang for an official visit and the American commander walked down the gangway to a red carpet welcome. He was H.B. Lee, once a five-year-old refugee from Vietnam back in 1975, and now the first Vietnamese American to command a US Navy destroyer. The Chinese public demonstrated a similar awareness of changes in American life with the enormous attention they paid to the arrival in 2011 of Gary Locke as the first US ambassador to China of Chinese descent. During his two and a half years in Beijing, however, Locke failed to adequately curry favor with privileged Chinese officials. And major Chinese state media eventually responded to his imminent departure by referring to Ambassador Locke with a racial slur as a rotten banana. When a banana sits out for long, its yellow peels will always rot, revealing its inner white core. Thus did the government of the largest nation with an emigrant rather than immigrant tradition reveal its incomprehension of the integrating and hybrid character of what Cullen Murphy has called the world's most successful multi-ethnic state, the United States. Across the last uh, several globalizing decades, the contours of what was considered foreign in American life shrank steadily due to sharply increased trade, information flows, cultural exchange, travel, and migration. In matters from food, music, and sports to disease, scientific education, and climate change, Americans became more engaged than ever before with non-Americans, a development eased by the rapid spread of English as a global language. Increased contact did not always lead, of course, to perfect understanding or even to good relations. Resistance to American-inflected globalization helped shape politics from Russia to China to the Middle East to Latin America. Thoughtful Americans worried about manifestations of anti-American sentiment abroad well before the September 11th attacks of 2001. And polls regularly revealed a wide gulf between Americans and informed knowledge of the non-American world. One example among many would be the Roper Poll of late 2002 on the eve of the US invasion of Iraq, which revealed that only one in seven young Americans aged 18 to 24, that is only 13% of them, could even locate Iraq on a map. Although Gary Trudeau in his cartoon strip Doonesbury responded that unfortunately for Saddam Hussein, all 13% are Marines. Widespread American ignorance of the outside world was perhaps no worse than parochialism in any other country, but it had greater impact due to the scale and the intensity of American involvement beyond US borders. The argument here, in sum, is neither Whiggish nor Pollyanna-ish, 
My argument is simply this, that across the 20th century, and particularly over the Cold War decades, the United States engaged increasingly with foreign peoples in and from every part of the globe. And those interactions significantly spurred the expanding definition in mainstream American society of who could be considered fully American in legal terms and also in terms of politics and popular culture. That is in the common sense of mainstream American life. The radically more inclusive public society in which Americans lived by the early 21st century compared to the early 20th century stemmed in large part from the imperatives of the nation's foreign relations. Perhaps the greatest advantage that the United States has in engaging with foreigners in this era was its relentlessly absorptive popular culture and economy. American society operated much like an amoeba does with foreign objects. I wanted to come up with a little video clip of an amoeba in action, but failed. I'm sorry, but go with me here. It's, it's, after an initial encounter, an amoeba slowly surrounds and absorbs the foreign. What used to be outside becomes inside. This process happened with the United States, with cuisine and the continual evolution of popular taste to absorb new ethnic traditions. The same process was visible with the commodification of the counterculture turning once exotic foreign-seeming items such as rock and roll records or incense and now marijuana in many states into profitable mainstream consumer items. So too with once feared black political radicals such as Paul Robeson and Malcolm X, each long since granted his own first-class U.S. postage stamp with a warm smiling image. The United States, the Indian American novelist Jhumpa Lahiri has suggested, just absorbs everything. It accommodates differences, but always extinguishes them in some way. Immigrant parents, in particular, experience the power of this force on their children with varying mixtures of regret, resignation, and satisfaction. And they understand that that power better than do anxious nativists and better than do observers, including historians, who focus too narrowly on the sound and fury of those nativists. American culture is the amoeba culture. I grew up in North, Amer North Carolina in the 1960s, where political leaders scored a lot of points by warning of the supposed threats of subversion that came from communists and from racial integrationists, from homosexuals, from hippies, from insubordinate women, and the like. I spent much of my youth trying to grasp the full range of the ignorance and ill will of powerful people like Jesse Helms, my former senator, elected five times, served 30 years in the US Senate, only, only ended by his own resignation eventually. If there was a subversive, they were wrong, these, these people, like Helms. They were wrong about a lot of things. They were certainly wrong about subversion. If there was a subversive force loose in the world, it came rather from America's own democratic ideals, combined with America's own popular culture and seemingly infinite consumer pleasures. That culture and its products encouraged the spread of the viruses of individualism and headlong material consumption, which tended to disrupt other more traditional cultures. What is the process of civilizing prominent clergymen Josiah Strong famously asked in 1885, what is the process of civilizing but the creating of more and higher wants? 
and Americans have been at the front edge of this process of civilizing ever since. A wide swath of Americans may have imagined themselves to be what they called conservatives, but their way of life brought persistent pressure for change everywhere it flowed. There was nothing conservative about it. Americans instead turned out to be the real subversives of the modern world, determined at home and abroad that other peoples would, if given the chance, choose to live just like them. Thank you. You've been listening to Tim Borstelman and the Nebraska Lecture Series. Support for this program is provided by Humanities Nebraska and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you.